Welcome to Stageworthy. I'm Phil Rickaby, the host of this podcast. This is episode 325. Just a quick reminder that Stageworthy is a one-person operation. So not only do I host a podcast, I also arrange the guests, I edit the show, I promote it, and I even created the music that you're hearing right now. I also shoulder all of the financial responsibilities for keeping the show going. So if you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it. There are a few ways you can do that. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people to find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And you can also leave a tip for the show by dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. I will put a link to that in the show notes, which you can find on the website or in your podcast app. But one of the most important things you can do, even more important than ratings, reviews, or even financial support, is to share this show on social media. Even a retweet of this show will help. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 324 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to find me online, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is John D. Houston. John is a Toronto-based actor and creator who has performed all over Canada, the UK, and the United States. He's a member of Canada's Métis Nation who has described his artistic practice as culturally misappropriating the works and identities of dead white guys. He's presenting Keir Cutler's play Civilized at the Ottawa Fringe June 17th to 25th. Here's our conversation. Tell me about Keir Cutler's Civilized. Certainly. Uh, Civilized is a play about the Indian residential schools told from the point of a civil servant from the year 1907 who works for the Department of Indian Affairs who is trying to justify and explain why the residential schools were such a brilliant idea and, um, and he wants people to stop toppling statues of Canadian Prime Ministers. Thank you very much. Hmm. Um, his attempts to justify this horrific crime uh, do not go well. I imagine not. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have, uh, in recent years, more people have become aware of the residential schools than were previously. Um, oh, I mean, when, also. I was, when I was in school, mm-hmm. even when I, was, when I started theater school in the, in, in, in the 90s, even though I had never been, t- I find out now that when I was in university, there were st- or college, there were still schools operating. Yeah, yeah, um, and the, we're finding more every day. Oh yes, yes. It, no, it's 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 interesting. When Kier first started to write this play, uh, quite some time ago now, he actually had to have a whole section of the play where the my character William Blank 
explained what residential schools were because people, the average Canadian, just had no idea. Um, and now, of course, we know very well what they are. Um, what, what, what's really fascinating about this whole thing is that in 1907, uh, a man named Dr. Peter Bryce, he, was the, he held the position of Chief Medical Officer for the Dominion of Canada. And he had submitted a report to Parliament saying, hey, the death rate in these schools, and I've inspected 35 of them, is shockingly high. Um, the Canadian government needs to do something about this. And the Canadian government went, yeah, maybe not. And 89 years later, in 1996, the last school closed. And in those 89 years, the Canadian government went, eh, do we really need to do something about this? Eh, maybe not. Yeah. And thousands of people, thousands of children, that's, I mean, children yeah. died and were shoveled into unmarked graves. I mean, the, the Canadian government uh, and, 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 and many aspects of, 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 of our society still sort of say, do we really have to do something about that? I mean, we look at the fact that a number, a lot of reservations don't have clean water. And I remember yeah. two elections ago when uh, Jagmeet Singh was talking about getting clean water to these places and some of the media outlets were asking, what, well, how much would that cost? Yeah. And it's like, but if this was... If this was Toronto that didn't have clean water, we would just do it without without question. Oh, heck, if this was Brandon, Manitoba, yes. that didn't have clean water, we'd do it without question. That's right. In, in fact, one of, the, one of the people currently running for the leader of the progressive, for the, the allegedly progressive, absolutely conservative party of Canada has said, I promise clean water for everybody, not just reserves. And I thought, well, everybody else does have clean drinking water, you racist piece of crap. Yes. Um, you know, th th that, that's, that's like saying, I promise to stop lynching in all communities, not just black ones. You know, right. like it's, yes. it's just revolting. Mm. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so this, as I say, my, my character, William Blank, uh, he's a, a senior civil servant with Indian Affairs. In 1907, he's the first person who reads Dr. Bryce's report about the residential schools and he thinks well this can't be true they're just trying to you know smear the reputation of sir wilfrid laurier the greatest prime minister of all time and i'm going to make sure that's that doesn't happen and as i said it 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 does not go well for william blank um the wonderful thing about this play is it's not just a screed hmm. it, it it is there are moments of humor, uh, black humor, I will admit, in many cases, but also genuine laugh out loud, funny mm. stuff. Um, and it's, I, I, I mean, I'm Métis, and I thought I was reasonably well informed about this whole thing. I know nothing. I could not believe the research crew did. Most of my character's dialogue is William Blank quoting from the time and hmm. it will curl your hair to hear hmm. what was being said yeah. about the schools and the first nations in you know and and like all canadians i like to think we're better than this yeah well turns out we're not that doesn't that's, mean we can't be better 
Yes, we can but, be better, but we haven't been up till now. No, and that's one of the that's one of the big lies we tell ourselves is that we're yeah. better than that. That yeah, you know, it's so much better here than in the U.S. And that's the lie that we tell ourselves that yeah. it's okay if it's not quite as good as it could be here. It's better than it is in the U.S. We'll tell ourselves. Yeah, and yet, and yet, you know, it was 1960, I believe, before First Nations uh, citizens were allowed to vote in this country. Right. Um, First Nations war veterans were denied benefits mm -hmm. because they weren't white. Right. There was literally no other reason for that. And and someone said to me, "Well, why didn't they vote?" And, and that's it, because they weren't <laughs> allowed to vote. Yeah. Because because the only people whose whose roots go back ten thousand years and more in what is now Canada were considered non-citizens. That's in the British North America Act. When Canada mm -hmm. became Canada, First Nations and Métis and Inuit became non-citizens yeah. and wards of the state. And that's sort of I, the thing. I, I think that sometimes we don't think about, I mean, white, Ameri white Canada doesn't think about what the idea of wards of the state means. Yeah. It, it means it, we, that, that the government says... These people are not able to take care of themselves. Therefore, we must be the benevolent, quote unquote, overseer. And that's and, right. And, and, and we must oversee their lives. That's right. The Department of Indian Affairs. What, and I, I, my character says this in the play. The, the, the Department of Indian Affairs was created to be, in effect, legal guardians. Because the right. Indians, First Nations and Métis, sorry, the Indians, my God, the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit had the same status as mm -hmm. children mm. and, and at the time, women, because right. women also had basically no rights. Um, so, yes, it's, it's uh, you know, I never learned that in Canadian history class, and no. I paid attention. Yeah. I liked Canadian history. They never told us that. What I remember hearing about my people was that the Métis were ignorant and superstitious, and Louis Riel kind of came in and just Svengali'd them into, you know, rising up against mm -hmm. against Ottawa uh, in the uh, in the rebellion, as it was then called, of eighteen eighty five. We now call it the resistance. So, yeah, yeah. There's there's, and it, it's very interesting actually talking to people of my generation versus people of say, um, you know, born say thirty years later, and and two very different viewpoints mm -hmm. uh, on on all of this. So, you know, some work is being done, yeah. uh, which is, you know, something. I mean, in the U.S., of course, they're fighting very hard against any acknowledgement that anything wrong was ever done. We're at least beginning to say, you know what? We were not, in fact, the nice guys a lot of the time. We did well, not. Well, I do think we do. We have the same forces trying to prevent us from having those conversations here. Oh, yes, we do. And indeed, some of them are running for leadership of the of one of the major political parties in this country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not naming any names. No, uh, of course not. But yeah. Oh, yeah, we absolutely do. I, <laughs> some of my friends on Facebook are basically, you know, oh, can't they just move on and forget about it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, no, because the Canada you live in was built yeah. on the premise 
that these people were inferior, that they didn't matter, that we could come in and just bulldoze over them. And, and that's and, exactly and, what happened. I mean, yeah. you know, it comes down to the whole idea of that that is very uncomfortable for a uh, 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 white Canada that's felt very uh, secure and safe and and uh, you know doesn't want to rock the boat. That the land that all of our cities and all of our everything is stolen. Yeah, yeah. The, the um, my character William Blank quotes quite extensively from speeches and literature of the time. And at one point, I quote from the parliamentary record spoken from the floor of the House of Commons. And Sir Wilfrid Laurier said, it was not contrary to moral law to possess and to take possession and even forcible possession of lands that were roamed over rather than possessed by savage nations and the justification being well they didn't have our you know the european understanding of mm. what you know land ownership was mm -hmm. and so therefore we could just come in and take it yeah well i mean it didn't it didn't doesn't help that that like you know the 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 the, the first nations thought of the idea of ownership of land as a ridiculous thing like, how can you own land? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It would be like saying to it would be like saying to someone from from Western society, "You see that piece of sky up there? I own that." Yes. You, you don't get to breathe that earth. Like, get yeah. the hell out of here! Yeah. You can't. You can't <laughs> own air. Right. Well, right. you can't own land either. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, if you if you again, if you go by the First Nations code, you know, you can. Yeah, it's it's we hold it in common. And, and probably if, you know, our government thought that way, we'd be less likely to build highways over land that can raise really good food. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. we'd be less likely to, you know, crap and drinking water. Yes. Yeah. But. How does it feel for you to be doing this play, Civilized, in Ottawa at the Ottawa Fringe? Oh my God, I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah. In, in fact, one of the things I have to do this week is actually send out invitations to the Prime Minister, the Governor General. The, you know, I don't expect them to show up, <laughs> but I want to at least say, you know what? I'll keep a seat for you. Um, and, this, and of course, as someone of Metis descent, uh, who was adopted by a white family, it's fascinating. Actually, when, when Kier approached me, um, Kier has written. 20 solo works that he has always performed. And when he began, I don't, I can't remember now why, what inspired him to do Civilized, as it's now titled. Um, but he knew right from the start, oh, no, this isn't for me. I need another actor to do this. And uh, someone said, well, you, you know, you know, John, get John Houston to do it. And so he called me up and said, you want to do it? And I said, sure. I said, are you asking me because I'm Métis? And he went, what? So I told him a little about my adoption story, uh, and he went, "Oh, that's great! Do you mind? Can I use that?" I said, "Sure." So <laughs> the prologue of the play is now about my adoption, mm. and when I was adopted in 1960, uh, <laughs> the social worker who handled the adoption warned—literally, that was the word—he warned my parents. She had met my birth father, and he was clearly of Indian background, as she, mm -hmm. she put it. 
Um, and, you know, yeah, I looked like a white baby, but mm. now the funny thing is, is that I was adopted in, this is in 1960, at a time when white, quote unquote, male children were, you know, at a premium. And my parents had been told that they were, you know, look, it'll be about a year probably before we have a child for you. Mm. So they'd gone off on holiday and Dominion Day weekend, as it was then called. I was born 22nd of May, Victoria Day weekend, so six weeks after I'm born. And they get back home and there's a message from the social services saying, hey, we have a kid for you. And they're going, oh my God, that's too early. We don't have any, you know, and they're out running around getting bottle sterilizers and cribs and stuff because they, it was early. Mm -hmm. And I was in the system for six weeks mm. when white baby boys were getting snapped up like the last turkey on Thanksgiving Eve. Hmm. So I kind of wonder how, and I didn't, and this never occurred to me until I started to talk to Kira about this for the play. I wonder how many white families said, yeah, no, we'll wait till we get an actual white baby. Thank you very much. Hmm. Adoption. Adoption is a, is a strange thing. I, I, I'm not adopted, but both my brother and my sister were adopted. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, in, a, in a, a similar but different situation, um, my brother, uh, my brother is black. My sister was uh, a, a mixed child. So she was black, white. And uh, that sort of like it presents unique uh, uh, opportunities and challenges to a family. And uh, that one of the challenges is. For example, as the children get older, as a white family, you don't know that you have to have a talk about police. Yeah. Because as a white family, you that's not something you worry about. It was only much later that, that you know, only you know, once we were adults that we realized that 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 was a talk we should have known. We didn't know that we needed to have, but we should have should have had it. Um, and also, be, we also had the issue of, you know, there were people say ignorant things like, are you going to tell him that he's adopted and like all kinds of strange things um, as, as a, as a, as a, a Métis child adopted by non-indigenous parents was, what was that? What, what moments like that did you have? Growing See, up? that was, the, that was, the, that's the irony. I never did. I got my birth mother's coloring. She was fair skinned and blonde hair. I have dark, I have the dark curly hair of my birth father but I have the white skin of my birth mother. Now, my uncles and aunts on my birth father's side are all obviously native or, well, in a couple of cases you could think, oh, maybe French, maybe Italian, but mostly it's like, yeah, no, no, no. My birth grandmother, my paternal birth grandmother looked white to me. Mm -hmm. My half siblings on that side of the family look white, but their kids all look Aboriginal. Hmm. So the, the, it's very strange in, in my family. Like it, it, the, 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 it's, it's like the native features skip generations. Hmm. Um, so so that, was, that was never an issue. Um, hmm. I mean, in all the years, people would say, oh, uh, are you French background? Are you Irish background? No one has ever said, ah, you're Métis, aren't you? Except for occasionally other Métis people. I go, you Métis? Hmm. And I go, yeah. I said, oh, I thought so. Um, but uh, so I... So I was very, very, very fortunate. I won what is, you know, the skin lottery. Right. I've never, I've never been followed by a floor walker in a store. Mm. I've never had to worry about a cop 
pulling a, you know, a gun on me because of the color of my skin. Um, unlike my, weirdly enough, my adoptive grandmother, hmm. who was also Aboriginal background, she had dark hair and brown eyes. And in 1900 in Manitoba, people used to call her Indian and half breed hmm. and that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's been very, I mean, every adopted kid, I'm sure, goes through the, what have I been adopted by somebody else? You know, mm -hmm. what kind of a life would I have had? Or what if I hadn't been adopted at all? Right. And I was very lucky that I had a family who said, you know, honestly, we don't care what color your skin is. Right. Or might become. Uh, and my mother, in fact, my, my adoptive mother said, well, you know, there's, there's native fat blood in my background. I, I'm fine with that. Hmm. Um, it later turned out when I finally met my birth father that through a complete random coincidence, my birth mother and my, sorry, my adoptive mother and my birth father are actually cousins. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my brother and I, my brother is the one child my adoptive parents had. We are biologically third cousins, <laughs> but he's, he's blonde haired and blue eyed. Hmm. I mean, I mean, there's, there's nothing, and, and like the Houston's don't look remotely, remotely Aboriginal. Um, but there is that. There is, you know. I mean, it's it's Western Canada, you know. Like mm -hmm. uh, everybody has some. Um, I just had enough, as I say, that it happened to show up on my birth father, and the social worker kind of thought, mm. "Oh, I should tell people." Did you uh, did you grow mm. up after adoption? knowing that you were Métis or was that something you had to learn later on? That was something I learned later on. I, I don't, even my, I mean, again, 1960, I, yeah. I don't think there was a lot of consciousness in, in the non-Aboriginal community as to what Métis meant. I mean, people were still using the term half-breed for God's sake. Yeah. Um, and so, no, my parents just knew that my birth father had dark skin and native features and that mm. was all they knew about it it wasn't till i actually spoke to my birth father on the phone for the first time that he told me he said you know you're you're metis like like mm. we're metis family and i went oh i had no i had no idea um i'd been quite fascinated by the metis i'd, I'd done several summers of john Calder's play the trial of louis riel um playing you know various so i knew you know that that history of the meat that part of the metis history I've actually since played real myself in that same production. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was something I found out in my mid thirties. Hmm. Now, after the discovery, after you found out that, that, that you were Métis, how, what was, what would, what did it mean for you to, uh, to play Louis Riel? Well, it was the first time I had ever, as I mean, I now make the joke about culturally misappropriating the identities of dead white guys because I play Tommy Douglas and Charles Dickens and William Lyon McKenzie. And like my whole career has been playing famous historical white figures. Um, it was, and I'd always admired Riel and I'd always wanted to play him. And getting to play that, I mean, it's, I suppose it would be what for an evangelical Christian playing Jesus would be like. You know, you're, you're playing the savior of your people, mm. a, 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 a man who was literally martyred by the mm. powers that be. Um, I, uh, 
I, I'll be playing them again this summer. I'm actually mm. missing the Edmonton Fringe to do it this year. Mm. And uh, I was, it's always very, very deeply moving to, to, sure, yeah. uh, to, to you know, to do this character. Coulter's play, it, he, he was Irish, and there is that sensibility of, yeah, the British are the bad guys. And indeed they were. I mean, Riel was legally lynched. Mm-hmm. There's no other word for it. Yeah. Um, he was executed under a law that was created, I think it was the 14 or 1500s, and that no one had been charged with right. in centuries. But it was like, no, we have to, we have to kill this man. He is just too dangerous. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an, it's an immense honor mm. and, and, and very humbling. And every, every night I go on that stage, I think you got to get this right. Hmm. You have to get this right. Here's a, it, just in terms of, you mentioned missing the Edmonton Fringe. Now you've been uh, touring uh, fringe festivals for a very long time. Longest, um, longest Canadian fringe touring performer, as far as I'm aware. What was, do you remember, I mean, what, do you remember when, when your first fringe was? And oh, which yeah. fringe was it? It was, it was the no longer it was the, the now defunct, I should say, the now defunct Manatic Fringe, small community outside of Ottawa, in 1990, I think it was 91. Hmm. It was either 90 or 91. I'm going to say 91. And um, this was before Ottawa had a fringe. Mm. And I did that festival for a number of years. Uh, and then the Ottawa Fringe came along and Manatic kind of just disappeared after that. Um, yeah, I mean, in those days... You got in, you'd apply by mail, and you just got in because mm. it was no big deal. It was just a thing that people did. And um, now, of course, it's it's completely different. You know, they, I mean, there's so many people applying. There's like, you know, I think I think someone told me there's something like 10 applications for every spot available at, at the Edmonton Fringe now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And back in my day, like, they said, oh, we'll start accepting applications on, you know, such and such a date. And you could apply a week later and you'd still get in. Sure. Um, and then it got to the point where whosoever courier arrived first with a stack of applications got in. And at that point, it was like, you know what? This is luck of the draw. Let's yeah. make it a lottery. Yeah. Um, so watching this thing just take off in a way that really no other country has managed to do quite what Canada does. You know, yeah, the, Eben- the, Ed- the Edinburgh Fringe is bigger and, and, and there are you know, large unjuried festivals in other parts of the world, but no other country has a, has, has like basically a, uh, a tour you can do. You can yeah. start in the East with Montreal and the festivals kind of go like once a week. And I, and I've, I, I used to do that tour. Mm. I, now I can find myself pretty much to Winnipeg and Edmonton. The, um, I mean, one yeah. of the things that I find interesting and the, the unique thing about the Canadian fringe is we've, there are, U.S. member festivals. Yes, you can start your you can start your tour in Orlando, yes. and then go to Montreal, and then yes, like, indeed, and it's, and, it's and a lot wild. of people do. I mean, uh, yeah. Melanie Gall, just to name one Canadian off the top of my head, is one of one of many. Um, I, I, I'm I'm going to feel so bad. Uh, Chase Paget. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to feel so bad that their names I'm thinking about. Yes, you're right. A lot of Canadian. Well, Chase is American. A lot of a lot of Canadians start in uh, 
start start with the flow. There's now a Tampa fringe as well. Yes, yeah. And uh, you're right, and then they go to Montreal and then Ottawa. I mean, it's not again as easy as it used to be, where you could literally just apply for one festival after the other, and you could yeah. do them all summer. Now you might have okay, I got into you know Montreal, and then I'm not in anything again until Edmonton, but I'm on the waiting list in Winnipeg, and yeah. So, um, and the American fringes, of course, now like they overlap. Like I think it like yeah. there's a, there's a fringe in Cincinnati, and it overlaps. I want to say with Winnipeg, I'm not sure about that. Um, so yeah, you, you, like you have these sort of alternate festivals you can do, but but there's no there's no question the Canadian ones are the bigger deal. Canadians, well, I mean, there's Winnipeg and Edmonton are so massive, and oh, this yeah. is the thing I think that like for years I only knew the Toronto fringe. I knew there was a I knew there was a I knew there was a circuit. I knew there was a tour, yeah. um, but you know. I, I assumed being like just only ever doing my hometown fringe that this must be what all fringes are like about this size. And then you hit like Winnipeg and you think, yeah. oh, this is massive, massive. Yeah. And then you go to Edmonton and then you really understand what a large fringe is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was it was always really funny hmm. when you were in Winnipeg to watch the Toronto waters kind of come in and go, oh, yeah, I'll do Toronto. I'll just, you know, kick back on this little Hicktown festival. Yeah. And then they'd kind of look around and go, oh, my God. And it's like, sit down, have a beer. Yeah. You'll be fine. But yes. yeah, 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 it was it was very. And, and and certainly anyone coming into Edmonton was just I mean, I mean, Edmonton was a small city. With this massive festival, mm. uh, I mean, I mean, I every year I did. I mean, I did Edmonton. I cannot tell you how many times. And and every year I would still think, I can't believe they do this every year. I I, I just can't believe it. And I I was billeted for years with a guy who took his vacation at the Fringe. I mean, he loved mm. theater. He would see theater all year round. He had this photographic memory for every actor. And he mm. could tell you, oh, yeah, they were in this, you know, two years ago. And, oh, I really like this. And this playwright is really interesting. And he would see seven plays, eight plays a day for mm. 10 days and and could keep them straight in his head. It was, wow. yeah, it, it was, I mean, I don't know of other countries that have that kind of, I mean, just theater maniacs, you know, and yeah. it's, it was so, it was so wonderful as an actor. People stop you and go, Oh, you're back. Great. What show are you doing? Or oh, right. I loved yeah. your show this year. And, you know, as an actor, I mean, there's nothing like that in live theater anymore. You know, it's no, I, I always say the fringes are like the Elizabethan theater that Shakespeare would have known. You're touring all the time. You're always playing in different venues. You know, it's it's an inn yard or it's, a, you know, up a back street or whatever. Or the fringe case, it's like an empty school room or, a, you know, the, you know, downstairs below a laundromat. It could be anything. And and it's and it's just pure unadulterated capitalism. It's how many bodies <laughs> can you get through the door? Because that's how you're going to get your beer and and uh, and green onion cakes today. That's where the money's going to come from. You getting those people through the door. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It it was and remains one of the one of the two most exciting theater experiences I've ever had was Canadian Fringes, and and the other one was during COVID, mm. uh, doing Shakespeare, the, the first folio of Shakespeare online, with an international cast called The Show Must Go Online, mm. and we had three days to rehearse. 
Wow. And, and of course, we'd have the script, you know, on your screen and you're acting in the camera to another actor who never mind a different time zone. They're on a different continent. Yes. Yeah. And we had this brilliant British director, young guy, um, you know, who just who like none of my friends are working. Let's do the first folio. <laughs> so, so we yeah. did. Yeah. And uh, it was just revelatory and everything you think wonderful about, again, about Elizabethan theater, making it immediate. And, um, you know, people would watch us who, ha who couldn't go to theater because they, they, they found being around people, uh, you know, distressing people who were, you know, neurodiverse. Mm. But hey, now I can see Shakespeare done by yeah. actors and, and, and I could just, you know, I don't have to worry about other people around me. And um, it was, and, uh, you know, I've, I, I, we all made friends around the world mm. you know from these people we we would work with it was yeah that was that on the fringe are to me that that's what really that's what great theater is it's it's live there's no television there's no movie camera there's nothing that can give you that experience even though i'm saying talking about working on zoom with with mm. another actor there's just something about that no that person is there in real time yeah maybe i can't touch them but i know they're there the fringe is the, there's that interesting thing you were talking about, you know, how, how, you know, you, the, the celebrity aspect, there are people who it's funny to see, like, to see how crazy people go for a show yeah, of uh, like an artist that comes back every year and mm -hmm. they become massive, but they're only famous for 10 days during the fringe. And then after that, they might walk down the street and nobody knows who they are. But for those 10 days, they're the biggest thing in the city. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember joking to one fringe artist who I know was pulling in a good, good payday. Like he, this particular artist was filling a 300-seat theater at 10 bucks a pop. And as you know, at Fringe, all money goes to the artists. Um, yeah. and, I, and I joked to them. I said, you know, this week... You're probably the highest paid stage actor in Canada. <laughs> and they looked at me and said, yeah, I guess I am. I said, but the rest of the year, he said, yeah, rest of the year, it's would you like fries with that, sir? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's the thing is, is, you know, you know, there, there are plenty of people who make their, their, the bulk of their money for the year in the fringe circuit. I was one of them. Hmm. Um, the other part of my, my annual income was doing Christmas Carol. Now, I was saying to someone today, could, could I make a down payment on a house? Not on your life. No way. But on the other hand, that wasn't a high priority for me. Mm. You know, I was making enough money for my priorities. I could pay rent. I could pay groceries. You know, I could afford to have, you know, a girlfriend. I could afford to travel. Yeah. Um, you know, I lived very simply. I, I was certainly living at or near the poverty line. But I made enough money that I didn't have to do anything else. Now, I then, right. at some point, I did, in fact, have to take a second job. But, you know, I was, I was very fortunate. And, and more importantly, I was doing scripts that I loved doing and that mm. meant something to me. Civilized is one of the, and I've been doing this for 30 years, Civilized mm. is arguably the best script I've, I've done to date. Mm. It's certainly in the top three. And I just feel so privilege to get to do this yeah and and i think of actors i know i've heard actors 
bitch about, oh my God, I'm in this play. I just hate doing it. And my response to them is, then quit. Yeah. Because I promise you there are 10 people behind you who would kill to do what you're doing and wouldn't bitch about it. You're an artist. You don't get to bitch. If you're unhappy. You know, the thing about, the thing about that, is that is that Fringe is such that, like, if you're touring the Fringe circuit, if you don't love it. I mean, everybody has bad days and everybody has yep. bad Fringes. But overall, if you don't love it, mm-hmm. you are putting yourself through a ringer for something that's just killing you. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a brutal thing to put yourself through every year, if you oh, hate yeah. it, especially. Oh yeah, and and uh, uh, and I, I should clarify the the actor I was talking to just a couple of minutes ago. You know, oh, I just don't know. He was working in a regular theater gig, being paid equity wages. And it's like you know mm. that is not a bad life. That's no. what we all kind of aspire to, or most of us. Um, so again, if you're unhappy doing that, you're in the wrong profession. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and one thing I can say about what I've done, I have never done a script I wasn't proud or at least keen to do. Mm-hmm. I've never woken up and going, oh, my God, I've got to go to work today. Yeah. When I was doing, well, any kind of theater. I mean, I, I have actually worked in productions in, you know, quote unquote, real theaters and been paid, quote unquote, real money. Mm. Um, but uh, I consider myself very blessed. And I, I think if you asked pretty much any actor, particularly fringe actors, you know, who've been doing it for a long time, they would they would almost certainly tell you the same. You're right. It is a pretty hard scrabble. When you go to, to fly with somebody to see your show and they just look at you like you're dirt under their foot and go, how many stars did you get? <laughs> it's like, um, well, if you really want to know, I actually got five. But you know what? Since you asked... And that's all that matters to you. You probably wouldn't understand what I'm doing anyway. <laughs> and that you is, know, the, yeah. When I uh, there's only there've only been a couple of cities that I I went to when I was when I was uh, touring the last time, mm-hmm. where um, people will you know you'd be flyering and people would look you in the eye and say, "Oh, I'm not coming to see your show." Yeah, and we're like you know you don't actually have to tell me that. Like, yeah, you could politely take my flyer and then throw it in the garbage when I'm not looking. You don't have to tell me that you're not coming. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my response is usually, oh, okay. Thank you for saving me the flyer. Yeah. If they're kind of nasty, I go, well, it's your loss. And I just move on. And what's funny is if you say, well, it's your loss. Generally the people around, cause I'll say it loudly, yeah. they'll laugh. <laughs> and if you can get them to laugh, even if you're doing something fairly serious, um, it'll, it'll pique their interest. Yeah. I had somebody try to return the flyer to me and say, oh, save the tree. I was yeah. like, tree's already dead. Yeah. It's a flyer. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so I they, would be I would be remiss if I did not ask you about yeah. a Christmas carol and uh what first drew you to that and uh uh how you've been uh, uh, performing it, do you use the the, the Dickens performance uh, uh, text, or do you have you created your own? Um, I I do use the Dickens performance text, and in fact, I use the Dickens stage directions. My particular performance of Christmas Carol is an attempt to recreate the story as the author first told it. Um, now, Dickens performed it over a twelve-year tw- period, uh, and. Um, during that time, he 
he shortened it and 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 rewrote bits of it and whatnot. My version is kind of a midway between the two. Hmm. Um, I always say Dickens walked on stage with the expectations you've all read the book. And yes. You've come to see me play the characters. I walk on stage saying you haven't read the book, but you've all seen a different film version. <laughs> And you're here to see me do whatever I'm going to do with it. Yes. So one of the one of the things I started doing early on was to put in scenes that Dickens had cut. Mm. He scenes we know he performed, but that he mm. cut. And the first one was a little tiny scene that has since I've since seen in a couple of film versions. But when I first did it in the play in 1992, uh, at that point I had never seen done. And it's Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come. And it's two in its two people in debt to Scrooge. And you know, he's gonna throw them out of their house. And the husband comes home and says, He's dead. Mm -hmm. And and the wife initially goes, Oh, thank God. And goes, Oh, oh no, that's a terrible thing to say. Right. He's a human being. But still. And I love that scene because at the time I started doing it, no one, unless they'd read the book. And even in the book, it's like literally a page and a half. Mm -hmm. People don't know that scene. And so they're yeah. going, oh, yeah, I know what's coming next. Oh, wait, what? Yeah. This is new. And secondly, because it's, it's a really dick move on the part of Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come. Like, it's a whoa <laughs> sucker punch. You know, because... Um, Scrooge, just before the scene begins, Scrooge says, oh, please, isn't, you know, he's been shown the dead body on the bed, who he right. does not realize is, is himself, but of course, we all know. And he says, oh, ghost, you know, please, just, isn't there anyone who feels pity for this poor dead man? And the ghost says, well, let me show you something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's, like, it's a total dick move. Um, and, and, the, the scene exists, as far as I know, only a handful of films. There's a BBC mm. TV version with um, uh, the, the guy who plays Jacob Marley opposite Alistair Sim. Um, mm. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, I've just blanked on his name at the moment, but he's playing Scrooge. And that scene, despite the fact this is a very short version of Christmas Carol, that scene is, 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 is in that. Mm. Then I think the, the uh, Patrick Stewart version has it. Mm. And there's one other one, I think, where you see it. But again, it's 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 not done very often, and um, so so I put that scene back in early on, and then I began putting little descriptive bits because of course Dickens is a master at describing things. He had to be because there were no movies. He had to paint a picture in his readers' minds, and there's a lovely bit where where uh, uh, Scrooge is going is is coming back to his house, and it's late and it's dark, and he lives in this massive like. 200 year old building that you know the city has kind of grown around and now you know it's this great big building in this tiny little cramped yard and dickens describes the house as looking so out of place that it looked as if it might have run there playing hide and seek with other houses when it was very young and forgotten the way out again mm. and it and it usually gets a bit of a chuckle from the audience because it's 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 this rather cute little personification of this gloomy old place that again most of my audience have seen in the movies so they had yeah. in their head oh yeah it's like the adams family house you know mm. it's this creepy place and suddenly you're trying to you have you're being told to imagine this as as you know as this little childish house playing mm -hmm. hide and seek 
and getting, you know, lost in this little tiny yard and like just sort of growing old there. Um, it's a fascinating thing because I think that the that the the Dickens descriptions are so interesting and vivid because of how he moved through London because he yes. he walked. Yes. He walked all the time. When he was writing, yep. he was walking. He would, it's yep. where he got his ideas. It's why uh, he's so evocative. He's why he's able to describe London in the way that he does because oh, he yes. saw it as a living, breathing city and the people in it were living, breathing, and he, he knew them. Yes. And his descriptions are so vivid because of that. Yes. And it's why even decades later, people were able to say, all right, Dickens is describing... Well, for example, Scrooge's house. Someone was able to pinpoint it's this building. It was it was a, a, a house built in the 1600s mm-hmm. after the Great Fire. Uh, so it was this large, you know, had been at one point this very grand house, and then as the city grew around it, it had become as as often happens, you know, it the, the area that had once been very grand and lovely now became sort of undesirable and kind of slummy. And the house got divided up into offices and small apartments, and um, but was but was very much a feature of Dickens' eighteen forty three London, and 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 stood for several decades thereafter. Mm. Um, and that was the other thing is Dickens expected his readers to recognize mm-hmm. landmarks he describes. Yeah, sometimes he would you know he'd name them like the Iron Bridge, for example, which is a, a very prominent site in Little Dorrit. And sometimes it was just, okay, I'm going to say, you know, Scrooge lived, you know, near, you know, near, Cor- I think it's Cornhill, you know, near this particular part of, in this particular part of London, which was geographically a very, very small city in 1843. And I'm going to describe vaguely what this place is like. And I will expect you, the reader, to go, oh, yeah, he's talking about that, you know, talking about that really creepy old dump, you know, two blocks mm. over. So, yeah, it's, it's, Dickens is, is, is marvelous. And, and, you know, he used to see his characters as living, breathing mm-hmm. three-dimensional people. He talks about um, writing Christmas Carol and, you know, he put it aside because he was also working on a novel, Martin Shuttlewood at the time. And he said, um, Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim would come and they would tug at his sleeve mm. to ask him to complete their adventure. Hmm. So, yes, yeah. I'll, 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 well, well, when it gets toward Christmas time, I'll have to talk. I'm doing, <laughs> I, I should mention, I'm doing Civilized mm-hmm. um, and the same place I do Christmas Carol when I'm in mm-hmm. Toronto at the Red Sandcastle Theatre. I'll right. be opening Civilized at the Red Sandcastle on September 30th, which is, of course, the day of Truth and Reconciliation. I'll right, right, right. Yeah. For a week. Um, but as you, you know, quite rightly, I'm, I'm actually going to open the tour in Ottawa in uh, just, well, I think it's... Uh, was it second second Friday in June? I haven't got the date in the top of my head. I want to say the sixteenth of June. Yeah, it it's, it's coming um, up. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, we've been, of course, rehearsing on FaceTime and Zoom right. up till now. I actually today had my first in-person <laughs> meeting face to face, as well wow. as rehearsal with our director Paul Hopkins. Hmm. He's a wonderful man. Um, he he directed um, Montreal Shakespeare in the Park. For a number of mm. years and uh, was at Stratford Festival and um, has done love TV and stuff. So it's it's been, when Keir said, uh, you know, I'm looking for a director, I said, you know, please, if it could be someone I've never worked with. Uh, mm. I never went to theater school and I would like, so 
for me, the fringe was my theater education. Sure. Wherever possible, I want to work with someone I've never worked with before because I know I'll learn something. Right. Right. Well, I'm, as we sort of draw to a close here, I hope that uh, I hope you get uh, uh, the prime minister out to see the show yes. or other uh, 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 members of parliament and uh, just that uh, uh, the, the, the Ottawa fringe uh, really embraces this show. I, I certainly hope so. I think I'll either be written out of town on a rail or carried <laughs> out on, 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 on the multitude's shoulders. <laughs> well, either way, you know you've done something important. Yes, that, that's right. I, I always say to people, the worst, you know, I don't mind someone saying, I hated that because at least I got a reaction. That's the right. Worst, the worst reaction is, eh, it was okay. Yes, that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for, for talking with me tonight. Thank you for your patience. And uh, I look forward to September and seeing the show. Thank you, Phil.